Now, first thing I'd like to do is remind you, at the bottom of page 1, we have the purpose statement of the book of John. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We've been talking about the fact that Nicodemus wrongly seems to assert that the performance of signs is the basis for believing the word of God or believing the claims of a prophet. And yet also the book of John here, chapter 20, some people cite that very purpose statement to say, oh, well, see, look, the the signs are the reason you should believe the rest of the book. That is not the point. If you don't believe the book, you won't believe its reporting of signs. If you don't believe the book, you won't believe its reporting of signs. So, the idea is that the testimony of the Word of God reporting these signs helps us to see that Jesus fulfills certain prophecies and that the performance of these signs drew attention to him and the writing of the book of John during the lifetime of witnesses would allow for opposition to be raised. The opposition that arose when you look at the Jewish material for those who rejected Christ, the testimony is that he performs the miracles by the power of Satan. So that's the argument. The other argument, right, we have this idea of Christ's tomb was empty, but it's because the disciples bribed the guards. And just just remember this for a second. Roman soldiers who accept a bribe and fail to perform a duty receive capital punishment. A public report of of someone being bribed is something that unless the soldiers were confident that for some reason that was a story that the authorities were going to accept, that they would think, otherwise, if I accept this bribe and that becomes widely known, I will be killed. Okay, so that report is a report that is a unimpressive argument because the idea that these soldiers accept a bribe and are willing to communicate that is something that if they accept a bribe and admit it, then they are forfeiting their lives, which makes the bribe of little use. Okay. So the idea is not here that we accept the signs and therefore accept the word. It's we accept the word which reports about the signs, and this is a part of what the Bible is putting forward and saying, challenge this. I dare you. And so it grinds its opponents to dust. The authority is the word. The authority is not the signs. The signs point to the authority. The signs are not the authority. Okay, so then we looked at the beginning of John 3. Remember, John 3 is a very important passage. It's a commonly cited passage. John 3.16 is the most frequently cited passage in our culture. 
by anybody who claims to be a conservative evangelical. It is the most common thing to put up. When people are trying to preach the gospel, when people are at a football game and they want to justify their existence there and they hold up a sign that says John 3.16. Right? you got John 3.16 all over the place. You see it cited. People don't, feel, don't even feel the need to quote it. They just put the citation up and they go, you know. Right? This, is, this is the level to which people are aware of John 3.16. Okay, so... That being the case, John chapter 3, important chapter, significant chapter, a very famous chapter. It's important that we understand it rightly. John chapter 3, verse 1. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Epistemological claim. We know this. How do we know it? Because of authority source, signs. Okay, so that's the context for the whole conversation. The entire conversation has to be interpreted in light of this. So, remember, the Bible teaches us prophets are people that claim to have a message from God. Prophets, if they're true, don't contradict past revelation. Prophets, if they're true, make zero, zero, zero false predictions. They sometimes have signs that draw attention to them or to their teaching. The claim that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Signs and wonders are not the ultimate authority. We talked about texts that teach that, for example, opposers of Christ will do signs that, if it were possible, would deceive even the elect. We talked about the magicians of Pharaoh. We also talked about the fact that signs themselves have to be interpreted, and we talked about the five attributes of truth. Okay, truth, you've got to hear. These are important. These are basic to apologetics. These are attributes of the Word of God. God's Word is propositional. We get declarative sentences. There's truth claims there. We get the meaning of that. We interpret it. If you don't understand the meaning of a verse, you don't understand the verse. If you don't understand the meaning of a verse, you don't understand the verse. If you couldn't explain to somebody what the verse means... You don't know what it means. Okay, so simply the recitation of the words is not understanding it. You have to understand the meaning of the words. The scriptures don't contradict themselves. They cannot be broken. God's word is yes, yes, not yes and no. God's word is understandable and knowable. He has revealed it to be known it is universal truth. It is not culturally attenuated and adjustable. It is a universal truth, the same for all men everywhere at all times. There are changes of administration, but it's true for everybody everywhere that back at a certain time, the administration with Moses was in effect. And it's true for everybody everywhere that in the year of our Lord, 2023, the new covenant is in effect. God's truth does not change. God does not change. He reveals more truths, but the new truths don't nullify the old truths. The new truths don't nullify the old truths. So, let's compare that to our experience again. Remember, experience experience is not propositional. It's not truth claims. You come up with truth claims by interpreting your experience. So the truth claims you get from experience are inventions of your own lovely heart which is totally not deceitful. If you've read ahead or back, actually, if you've read back in the book, you know that that's false. Your heart is deceitful. 
Since experience is not rationally coherent, you experience things that contradict, and then you just explain away the ones you don't like. That's what we all do. That experience I don't like, I'm going to hold on to the one I do. That's what we do. We interpret experience, and we throw away the ones we don't like. Since experience relies upon invalid reasoning from fallible senses, and so it is not certain knowledge, Since experience is relativistic, it is not universal, and it changes. So it is not truth. Since experience is not truth. You want to talk about that more? Come and talk to me. This is very important. This is very foundational. This is the doctrine of authority. This is chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession. This is the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture is the authority. Page 3. Jesus answered and said to him, remember, remember, what's the context? Jesus, I know you're a messenger from God because of your signs. Jesus' response, most assuredly, seems pretty sure of himself, most assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Prophets, are officers of the kingdom of God. You will not know the difference between true prophets and false prophets unless God causes you to be born again. You will not know the difference between the true church and the false church unless God causes you to be born again. Once you are born again, you accept the authority of God's word, you hear the voice of Christ, and you will not hear a false prophet. Is that experiential? Is that like I get the feels? Like, I know this prophet's good because his voice is so smooth. Joel Osteen's smooth. False teacher, by the way. Obvious. This is just like, this is just like alley-ooping. Like, just talking about Joel Osteen is just a waste of time. I get it. You guys know it. So, go all day on that. It's not a feeling. The way you know the voice of the shepherd is because the truth content of God's word, you have been caused to accept, to believe it. And you see when things contradict it. Maybe not right away, but you're going to test things against the word of God. And... God is going to uphold you in that. He's going to cause you to not only believe which messengers are right, so you're not only going to believe the scriptures, but you're also going to believe some of the content and throughout your life you'll believe more of it. So as you become aware of what it teaches, you will believe what it teaches, and then you will be more and more competent to resist false teachers in the maturing process. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You don't know that I am a true prophet because of the signs, Nicodemus. You know that I am a true prophet because God has given you spiritual life. Okay? So do you understand? What Jesus is saying here is, the basis is not the signs. The basis is God's word itself. 
and you've been caused to understand and believe God's word because of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he gave the condensed version, and this is a test for him as a teacher. Okay, so this is a shibboleth moment. Right, this is a time where he took a pattern of words that was designed to be dense, and his goal is to push back on Nicodemus's bad point to see if Nicodemus will repent and confess the truth and to see if Nicodemus gets it. So this is the behavior of a wise man testing for another wise man. Present something and wait for reaction. Present something dense. Wait for reaction. So what's contained here? Unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What are the theological presuppositions of this? One, it assumes a spiritual deadness to man from the first birth. Okay, So when you're conceived or when you're born, right, the assumption is that at the beginning of your life, you are spiritually dead and you need a second birth. You need a second life generative process to make it so that you are not spiritually dead. So we talked about spiritual deadness last time. Remember, spiritual deadness is unbelief or it's disbelief. The removal of spiritual deadness occurs by giving faith, right? You remove disbelief by putting belief there. We also talked about how that includes in the doctrine of total depravity a doctrine that only evil proceeds from our fallen nature and evil always proceeds from our fallen nature so that before our regeneration all we do is sin but guess what? After our regeneration everything we do is still sin still tainted by sin. Why? I've written out the three things here and Mr. Nye was kind enough to draw this out by questioning afterward. It is under point B there An act is sin if it's done by the person performing the act with the wrong motive. Okay, if you're if you don't have the motive of glorifying God, it's sin. You can do the best thing ever, and if it's not with the right motive, it's sin. Okay? Next, we have to be able to show it from the scriptures to be a good work. Objectively. Show me where. Show me the argument. Thirdly, we have to actually believe that information that is taught in the scripture about why it's a good work. So it's done with the right goal for the glory of God. It's done on the basis of an argument from scripture that's valid based upon a right interpretation of scripture. And we actually believe the thing. We think it's true. Okay, those three things. So spiritual life, inherently, by its definition, right? spiritual death is unbelief, it's, it's believing falsehood, spiritual life, John 17, 3, is the knowledge of God and of Christ. So it's, it's believing Christ. So spiritual death, deadness, unbelief, life is belief. And we talked about the process here. There's the external call, which is the preaching of the word. There's the internal call, which is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of a person. That internal call includes a general illuminating, right? The light that lights the minds of all men, the image of God, the fact that we're all guilty, we all suppress the truth. 
and unrighteousness. We're all responsible because of this internal call that we are to repent. There can be a there's a there's a general illumination there. There's also special illumination when people hear the scriptures like the Pharisees and they don't believe them. Or they hear a prophet like the Lord Jesus Christ talking to them face to face and they don't believe him. But they understand him. He says, I'm the son of God. And they go, blasphemy, shirt tearing, you know, knee dropping to the knees, picking up stones. Guy gets away. We're going to do a drive-by stoning and he got away. Special illumination where God takes special revelation and he causes understanding. There's also a saving special illumination where he not only causes you to understand, but to believe. So we talk about irresistible grace. God's grace is his desire for the well-being of people who don't deserve it, in fact deserve the alternative. And he, when he wants to save a man, he does it. And so he does that by effectual calling. Page 4. He calls a man to believe. This is the decree of the Holy Spirit to convert a person that's carried out at a particular point in time with certainty. It will prevail. And it causes belief in the gospel in the intended recipient. The effect of effectual calling is regeneration. It is the giving of spiritual life, the giving of faith. It's the giving of faith that can't be taken away. It brings about repentance unto life, which is the turning of the mind. And that has external fruit as well. But the external fruit is not, is not the saving repentance. And saving faith is a mental assent to the truth claims of the gospel doctrine. That's on page 5. And I'm going to spend a second on those two. I'm going to show you what the Shorter Catechism has to say on them. Okay, so this is, the, this is, the, this is what being born again is. It's being given this. It's being given this. Okay, so... Page 4, Roman numeral 8, V-I-I-I. Repentance unto life. The turning of the mind. Okay, the, the Greek word for repentance or repent is metanoia, which just means the turning of the mind, the changing of the mind. It's, I thought this, and now I think that's false, and I believe the truth. This results in works that are worthy of repentance. It results in, there's a broader definition of repentance that includes works. The works are fruit. The root is the changing of the mind. So replacing bad external words and actions with good external words and actions is the fruit. But there's other fruit too. Okay? I want you to think about this. There's also internal fruit. Okay, you you have the first moment of repenting unto life, and you then continue to grow. You have virtues like peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Okay? There's internal fruit. There's this progressive work that's occurring in you. But a person is saved with the smallest faith at the initiation of that faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. The smallest faith that the Holy Spirit gives is a saving faith. 
Now, so what is repentance unto life? What does the Shorter Catechism say? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. So it's a gift from God for our salvation. Whereby a sinner, so whereby a sinner, this is an action of a sinner. The repentance is your repentance. It's not God's repentance. God repents not. He is not a man. It's you repenting, but it's caused by God. Your repentance unto life is a gift from God, and that gift is you coming to understand your sin rightly. Okay, first this is out of a true sense of his sin. An apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So first it's you understand your guilt. Second, you understand who God is and his mercy. And then you do with grief, so that's seeing as bad your sin, and hatred of his sin. So you, you see the sin is bad, and you regret it, and you see it as loathsome, hateful, a worthless thing. So your valuation of sin has changed. You turn from the sin unto God. Okay, this is the turning of the mind. How do you turn from sin? Is sin a physical object? Are you like, here's sin, here's God. Maybe you make sin into some physical object, and so there we need to make God a physical object too. So it's gonna, okay. And so then you turn from one to the other physically. No. What is the point? The turning of the mind. Do minds physically turn? Like, is your is your mind spinning right now? Is your head spinning? Okay, that's because I'm not preaching clearly enough or slowly enough if that's happening. But if we talk about the mind spinning, what we're doing is we're talking about the idea of being confused because we don't know which thing to believe. Okay, so the idea that your mind's going back and forth because it's not clear. I don't understand. And so you're trying to figure it out. So your mind is not settled. That's what that figure of speech is about. So the turning of the mind in repentance is the going from believing one thing to believing the other thing. And that other thing is the truth. We go from believing falsehood to believing truth. We turn from our sin, thinking it's valuable, liking it, valuing it, Unto God. Now we value God. We think God is good. We define the good differently. We used to define the good as whatever false God we were chasing. This thing will make me happy. This thing is the point of life. And we go, that's not the point of life. It's empty. It's vain. It's meaningless. This thing is not going to make me happy. It's going to make me miserable. And so you go, God is the source of joy. God is the good. So your perception, your mental understanding, the mental content is changing. And this part sounds confusing because this kind of sounds like, look at this part of the, of, the, of the Westminster Confession. It says, turning from and unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Okay, we hear the word endeavor and we think try real hard. Okay, so we read this and we think, ah, repentance unto life. I've got to have a full purpose with real hard trying with new obedience. Yeah, well, have fun with that. Does anybody here fully purpose all the time after obedience to God and never waver? Does anybody here always trying real hard every moment to obey God? Does anybody here new obediencing all the time? No. What is the point? The point is that there's a sincere purpose, that there's a, 
that there's a, a purpose that is not hypocritical. It's not a pretense. You actually purpose to obey God. There's a part of the faith. You go, I, I want to obey God. And you might also have competing desires for sin. In fact, you're going to have them until you die and go to glory. And the endeavor, the word endeavor comes from a French word that means to acknowledge a duty. Okay, so we think about endeavoring now, and we go from this idea of acknowledging duty to if you acknowledge a duty, you try hard. And so now when we think of endeavoring, we think of trying hard. Okay, this is what's happened linguistically. So at the time of the writing here, the original French meaning of the word was more closely tied to the English usage. So this idea of the acknowledging of a duty, the acknowledging of a commitment. So a part of repentance unto life is acknowledging your duty to obey God's law. Antinomianism, the rejection of God's law, an opposition to namas, law, is an indicator of a false conversion. You say Jesus is Savior and you won't admit that he's Lord. You do not believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Now, sometimes, hear what people say there. They say, you say Jesus is Savior, but you won't say he's Lord. Well, if you're not obeying him, you're not converted. And we've switched subjects from faith to works. So when you hear people talk about the lordship controversy, there are some people who will say, you can accept Jesus as Savior, but not accept him as Lord and be saved. That is false. It's a heresy. It's antinomianism. If you do not reject the authority of God's if you do not accept the authority of God's law, you do not accept Jesus Christ as Lord. There are other people that say you don't accept him as Lord unless you're obeying him. That is neonomianism. Neo new. Namas law. New lawism. If the gospel is a new law, then it's just another way for us to all go to hell. So if we say that repentance unto life is enough obedience to get saved, eh, false gospel. We must guard, I'm going to stop knocking this thing over. We must guard, we must guard against antinomianism and neonomianism. Lots of nomianism. So what's the middle part? What's the right way? What is the gospel way? Acknowledge Jesus as Savior, what, who he is and what he did. Acknowledge the authority of his law. That. And then you, you're acknowledging the fact that you're a breaker of his law. But you need to stop. Does that sound like your life? Okay? Now, repentance unto life involves that mental content. If it's anything else, and you say you've got to repent and believe to be saved, Guess what you've just eliminated? Justification by faith alone. You've made justification by faith plus whatever thing you added there. Page 5. So now we have saving faith. What's saving faith? It's the other side of the coin. If you have repentance unto life, you have saving faith. If you have saving faith, you have repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is talking about the changing from unbelief to belief. Saving faith is talking about the belief itself. What is saving faith? Saving faith is understanding and believing the truth claims of the gospel doctrine. Mmm. That's good. 
Saving faith is understanding and believing the truth claims of the gospel doctrine. Shorter Catechism 86, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, it's a gift of God, whereby we, okay, who's doing the believing? Is God believing for you? No. He's giving us faith. We are the believers. We're doing the believing. But he gives the belief to us. Whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he has offered to us in the gospel. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ? Well, we're, we're told in the book of John, those who receive are those who believe. Anyway, remember we saw that earlier on in chapter 1? Those who receive are those who believe. But furthermore, the idea of receiving Christ is to believe that everything Jesus claims to be, everything he says he is, that's true. And everything he claims to do, that is true. That's receiving Jesus Christ. If you believe who he is and you believe what he's done, resting upon Christ, resting upon Christ is the belief that there's nothing you have to add to the work of Christ to one, pay for your sin, and two, provide a covering of righteousness. You rest because there's no work to do. So it is believing that there's nothing else you have to do. So receiving Christ, who he is, what he does. Resting upon Christ, there's nothing I have to add. As he's offered to us in the gospel, what does that mean? Jesus is offered to us in the gospel as truth claims. We must receive him in these truth claims. And we must not make up truth claims about him or reject any of the truth claims that he are revealed in the scriptures. So the gospel is the saving message revealed from heaven, contained in the scriptures, given by the apostles and prophets. That message, according to the scriptures, we have to receive that message. Christ is explained to us in the gospel, but get this, Christ is in the gospel. When you believe the gospel, you are believing Christ. The scriptures are the mind of Christ. So when you believe the scriptures, you are believing Christ. When you believe the gospel, you are believing Christ. He is given to us in the gospel. He's offered to us in the gospel. It's not just something that's like Christ. It doesn't just accord with Christ. It is Christ. When you believe His Word, you are believing Him. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. When you believe the Word, you believe God. Now, page 5. This new birth begins our sanctification. It is the definite or the definitive moment of our sanctification, where there's a break, there's a jail run. You are no longer prisoner to Satan. You are no longer a part of the conscript army of the world. You are no longer a slave to the flesh. You are now free by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are a member of the church. Invisibly, you already were, but you have been brought in in life. And you are under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a jailbreak. There is a redemption out of slavery. There is a removal from that old world. That definite moment is a break from death to life. It's a resurrection. 
And God will progress you, and he will not let there be a loss of your faith. He will cause your faith to persevere, because he will preserve. None that are in his hand will be taken out. You can't jump out. There is nothing, there is no creature, there is no power under heaven that can remove you from the hand of God. The smallest faith is faith. It is everlasting life. It is not temporary life. It cannot be lost. That's all there in unless you're born again you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so he gives him this little wise man proverb and he goes your serve, Nicodemus what are you going to do? Nicodemus throws it up Hits back. Let's see what he does. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? If this were an American sitcom, there'd be an audience, Oh. So that response, that should be your response as the audience. You go, Oh. Nicodemus. You think he's talking about the literal, physical birth of a human being by his body a second time. Or you're asking him to explain it further and you don't get it and you should get it because you're a teacher of Israel. So Jesus answers, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now remember, water is about the cleansing power of the Spirit. And spirit is about the origin, so it's effect and origin. Both are spirit. It's the spirit's cleansing, and it's the spirit's originating power. So where does the new birth come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. What does it do? It cleanses. It cleanses the souls of those who are filthy with unbelief. It removes deadness and gives life. Okay, so that's the idea. You have to be born of water and of the spirit. If the water there is baptism... That teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. Okay? If the water there is the birth water, the breaking of water, then we're making justification by regeneration plus making it out of your mother. Right? This is not what is being said. What is being said is the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit and the origination from the Holy Spirit. Unless one is born by that cleansing power, in that power from the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God there is the same phrase we saw earlier. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now there was some concern about, am I, am I misinterpreting that? Okay, so I need to, we need to make this abundantly clear. There are, we can, the kingdom of God, we can say, is this talking about the providential rule of God? Is it talking about the visible church? Is it talking about the invisible church? So, let's do invisible church first. You cannot see the invisible church unless you're born again. Okay, if you're born again, can you see the invisible church? When you're born again, do you see E's on everybody's foreheads? Do you know who's elect? No, you do not. That is not what is being talked about. Providence. 
That one seems believable, right? You go, oh yeah, once you're born again, you see God controls everything. All that stuff that happened in my life, it was for my good. Makes a lot of sense. But let's go to the second usage. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you only enter providential control when you're born again? Is it like just like a randomizer until you're born again? And then it's like, boom, God's going to control things for you now. No. Kingdom of God is not providence. It does not make both make sense. Okay? If we make them both visible church, what happens? You can't see the visible church unless you're born again, and you can't enter the visible church unless you're born again. What does that lead to? Baptismal regeneration or some sort of perfect ability for the guys that are baptizing to tell who's regenerated? Okay, so those are nonsense. We see the visible church has people who aren't saved in it. For example, a Judas, right? Did Jesus mess up there? No? Okay. So what's happening? We're left with some difficulty because it's difficult to use both terms, the same term, kingdom of God, to use both of them with the same definition. So, what is the visible church? The visible church is, the visible church is a representation of the invisible church. It's a visible sign of the invisible reality. So, we talk about this and we get to, you can't see the visible church unless you're born again. You don't know the difference between a true church, a true prophet, and a false prophet. And furthermore, you cannot enter into the visible church and it's being used here symbolically to represent the invisible church. Okay, so if you don't get this still, this is the last time I've explained that from the pulpit for a long time. And so if you don't get it, I need you to come and talk to me, okay, so that you can deal with this. This is an important text. So we have this idea that the kingdom of God is the visible church, but you can't enter it being used to represent the invisible without being born of the Spirit, born of water and of the Spirit. So we talked about, in verses 6 through 7, we're talking about the work of the Spirit to generate life. We talked about natural flesh versus spirit. And we talk about this idea of the work of the spirit in terms of the blowing that's done. And so we see all of that. And Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? Okay, so now he's just admitting that he just doesn't, he doesn't get it. And so Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? This is a rebuke. And any teacher who claims to be a teacher in the church who doesn't understand Calvinism, doesn't understand the new birth, the appropriate response is to say, are you a teacher and you don't get it? In other words, you should not be a teacher because you do not get this. You should not be a teacher because you do not get this. So the Reformed faith, very plainly laid out there. So we get to verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So earthly things, the need for a spiritual life from outside is earthly. That's a thing we, we should recognize by the reality of the way things are right now. And the heavenly things are the things we get. Here's the problem. Here's the stuff we get. The heavenly things are the things we get. So then, 
13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So, there's no witness to bring you this information except for the guy who was in heaven. And he's coming down to earth to be the witness. So, verse 14, page 8. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, eternal should be everlasting. It's used as everlasting later, but everlasting is a way better translation. Eternal is a word that's ambiguous. Eternal can mean it's everlasting, but it can also mean it's without beginning. Okay, So that's not at all here. The life is not without beginning. It has a beginning. It begins with the new birth. Okay, So it's everlasting life. So he's moved on to the heavenly things. Verse 14 is the heavenly things. So the point is this. If you don't see that you're dead, if you don't see that you need salvation from your sin and misery, the solution will not matter to you. Okay, the great analogy of this. If I walk around grabbing particular persons out of a crowd who I know have a disease, but they don't know it. If I just grab them and say, there's this fantastic treatment it cures this particular disease. And if, you, if a person takes it, then that disease will be cured. If they don't think they have the disease and they don't think the disease is a problem, they don't care about the cure. The law of God shows people their earthly condition, their fleshly condition, their sin. And the world wants us to shut our mouths about the law. They hate it. The church broadly, wants you to shut your mouth about the law because most of the church hates the law. Guess where we need to be focusing our attention? The law. The law of God. The commandments, the great commandments, the ten commandments, the application of the law in our lives in detail, the application of the law to our businesses, to our homes, to the institutions we are part of. That's what makes it so that everybody screams. It's what makes them see their guilt, and that's why they scream, because it hurts and they hate it. The law of God shows people the earthly part, and if they don't get the earthly things, how are they going to understand the heavenly things? We should tell people the gospel. We also need to tell the law, and there's way more opportunity to tell the law. So here's the heavenly part. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, the verses earlier about the need for a new birth are an assertion about the condemnation that we deserve. It's an assertion about our spiritual deadness and the need for spiritual life. And then he explains how the giving of that spiritual life connects us to the lifting up of Christ for crucifixion. The context for the death of Christ is our deserving of death. Then verse 17, 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The point there is, the world's already condemned, and so Christ coming into the world is to save the world, to save people out of every nation, not just Jews, but every Gentile nation. So God's desire to save the elect from every nation is the reason He sends His Son into the world. Because he could have simply not sent his son into the world and everyone would be condemned. And then he summarizes in verse 18. He summarizes. Okay, so he gave it in a kernel. Then he explains it. And then he summarizes it. Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God. There's a violation of the law right there. Not seeking, not knowing, not glorifying. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world in general revelation, in the incarnation, in special revelation, in his creative decree, in his providential decree. And men loved darkness rather than light. They, they loved their sin and falsehood rather than the truth of God, truth that is God, loving God, because their deeds were evil. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Okay, this is talking about the inability of man. The flesh cannot produce light going to. The flesh cannot produce light going to. You can't, out of your flesh, go to the light. Out of your darkness that dwells in you, you can't go to the light. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So we're exposing. We take the law and we expose. And once their their deeds are exposed with the law, that makes it so they're going, I am condemned. They want to justify themselves. They want to cover up their sin. They want to blame shift. Okay? I didn't do anything wrong. That was good. Uh, i got to cover this. i got to hide this. I can't argue this anymore. I'm just going to say I didn't do it. Fine. So then you have a hypocritical society where people are just covering up sin, trying to keep it hidden. And then you've got people trying to find ways of blame God, blaming other people. This isn't my fault. Freudian, it's my parents' fault. God controls everything, then God made me do it. The devil made me do it. Whatever. They have to condemn themselves and have their evil exposed. Verse 21, But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Okay, nobody's got that except for Christ. Nobody's got that except for Christ. So he who does the truth, that's Christ. He comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. This is him being shown publicly. This is a part of his lifting up. 
his crucifixion and his signs and his ascension, all of those are a type of lifting up. They are ways in which he is seen by everybody. This idea that he comes to the light to be seen so that there's an exposure of his works as righteous. And his righteousness condemns the world. Because the opposite example, doing righteousness in the face of people who are evil, it's this righteous example to the condemnation, and they hate it. His public ministry is a type of him being lifted up to be seen. The idea of he needs to be put on a platform, he needs to be raised up so that he is seen by everybody, and the seeing of what he does. Now his being raised up, we think about this, where is, where is it that the cure for sin is given? It's at the cross. Okay, so this story is from Numbers there. There's a few verses there. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. This is the people of God are in the wilderness, and they go and they're dealing with problems. And one of the problems is this Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Right? What an ungrateful people, right? They're in slavery. They're taken out of slavery. And this is the response. But don't we have this response? We go, God, why did you take me out of my sin so that nobody likes me anymore? And, and so that I don't get all the fun things anymore? And why have you done this? You know, is it just to ruin my life? Why have you brought us up out of sin to die in this wilderness world? For there is no food and no water, nothing to satisfy my hunger, nothing to satisfy my thirst, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Get the hypocrisy there. What worthless bread? This is the manna. This is the bread that falls from heaven. They don't have any bread. God literally made bread fall from heaven for them to eat. And he makes water come out of rocks for them to drink. And God doesn't provide it. And we go, we have the Bible. I don't have any fun. I don't have any good life. I don't have any meaning. I don't get to avoid boredom. And this worthless book that tells me how to live a useful life with joy, it's loathsome. Right? That's, that's what we do. We like floppy two-year-old temper tantrum it. Right? This, this response of like, Muh. God gave us this and it's, we don't have anything, and he gave us this stuff, and that stuff's terrible. This is us. We do this. There's no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. When we don't like what God has given to us, God goes, okay, fine, let me, let me show you again what the alternatives are. Maybe you will find it by contrast more enjoyable. So the fiery serpents, these serpents, they come, they bite, they give venom. When you're bit by a venomous serpent in a time without antidote, you are going to die. So if it were, when we are brought out of the world into the visible church, if we are unbelieving, or if we are brought in with real saving faith, but we are tempted to fall back and backslide, God hands us over to suffering, these fiery serpents, and in a way that if we would not repent, we would die. Those whom he wants to preserve, he predestines their repenting. 
The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So this idea, you get bitten, there's venom, there's this serpent, and if you look up at the serpent, if you, if you look to God to save you from death that's in you, this dying process that's there, that if you didn't repent and look to the means that God has provided, you will die. This serpent, you look at it, and God supernaturally removes that poison. He removes that deadness from inside of us. And so there's the, we think about the death of Christ in terms of paying for guilt. That's absolutely part of what he does. But in paying for our guilt, he then obtains for us this work of internal cleansing and life to remove the deadness that's inside of us. So Jesus said in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He has to be made publicly the one who will save us from the death inside of us so that we can look to Him as a public person. And so in the lifting up of Christ, in the making Him known to the nations, He becomes the object to look to. He's the object of our faith. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. May this lifting up, this publication of who He is and what He's done, is so that people can know where to look. That is our testimony as the church. That is our confession. We preach the law that people would know their earthly condition, and we preach the gospel that they might know where to look. We are called to do that as a body corporately here. And we are called to do that as individuals going out into the world. You in all of your stations must make Christ known. The magistrate's job is to use the law to make sin clear by punishing crime. When murderers get hung publicly, everybody is called to think, we deserve death for our sins. When heads of house use the rod on their children, people are called to think, I deserve God's wrath and I must repent. And when we as individuals read the Bible, seek to worship God, we are called to a deeper deeper understanding. The church must preach and use the keys. And there is an obligation in every sphere for all of us to take the word of God and to apply and preach the law and to preach the gospel. That whoever believes in Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.